Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, we hosted the Counselor's Town Hall with Counselors Esther Paul and Lloyd Ferguson. Also, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh joined us to discuss the latest revelations in the SNC-Lavalin scandal. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. It's uh, time for a Counselor's Roundtable. Now, we do the Mayor's Town Halls. Yesterday, uh, Burlington Mayor Marianne Mead Ward was with us. Uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger, of course, has been uh, on here. We do these every few weeks, and uh, it's been a, a tradition here on CHML for many, many years. But uh, we wanted to, uh, to move this into the realm of, of having counselors in here and having some roundtable discussions about some of the key issues, uh, not unlike uh, what they do, of course, at the council meetings, the general issues committee meetings that uh, you see at City Hall or watch on Cable 14, or you can live stream them. There's any number of ways you can follow that if you want. But uh, we'll, we'll do it here, and we're going to do it for a little while. We're going to invite two or three counselors in each time uh, and uh, discuss some of the hot issues and try to get some reaction to what they're doing and, uh, and their perspective on this. And uh, to that end, uh, we're pleased to welcome, uh, well, two of them so far anyway, uh, uh, Esther Pauls, who is now the, uh, the counselor for Ward 7 up on the Central Mountain. Good to see you again, Esther. Always good to see you. And, uh, and Lloyd Ferguson. Uh, f- you're Ward 12, aren't you? I, I just call, <laughs> I just say Ancaster. Ancaster's okay, but yeah. it's all, you also have to add West Flamborough now, too, with okay. the change yeah. ward boundaries. Okay, so it is Ward 12. All right. Uh, and uh, we are expecting Narendra Nan to be here shortly. Uh, she was anticip- scheduled to be here, so uh, we will start without her anyway, and hopefully she can jump in here when she gets uh, into the studio here. Uh, first, Ash, I, I got to ask, and I'm going to start with you on this, Lloyd, because you're the, you're the, the veteran. You've been around uh, most of all three of them here, and and you are, of course, uh, heavily involved in public works. Have been ever since you were elected to council. Uh, we've had some concerns over the last couple of months. Obviously, the Red Hill report, and I don't want to get into the who's what where because I know that's going to you know be the subject of an inquiry. But again, a story this week about a, a staff report that somehow got left in somebody's bottom drawer. There was not much action on this. Uh, now, we're told the work is done, but it was done about five years later than it should have been. And we're talking about some of the maintenance stuff that had to be done on the link over the, the last number of years. The overriding concern a lot of people have expressed to me, though, over the last couple of days, as we've discussed this, is, uh, it, first of all, is there a communication problem at City Hall between staff and council? And and what is going on with these p- reports that, uh, for some reason, are all of a sudden resurfacing? Well, absolutely. I mean, that was my first question, too, when our, our GM of Public Works contacted me as the chair to tell me about the problem. How many more are there like this? Because it's embarrassing when these things pop up. Now, I'm not sure there's a good logical explanation. Uh, I, I know they get a lot of these inspection reports done. We're required by uh, by law to inspect every structure in the, in the city bridges and, and overhead signs, anything that uh, the public uses every two years. And so these inspection reports are coming in regularly as, as these structures are, are investigated. So uh, clearly we've asked staff to go back, and they are. They're going back for the last 10 years to take a look at every consultant's report and see if there's any others out there, and if there are, to let us know. They don't know what they're going to find, so they couldn't give us a specific timeline, but I fully expect they'll be back before Public Works Committee um, in the fall, uh, before Christmas at least, uh, with any update for any others that can be out there because we, we don't ever want to put the public at risk. But let me tell you this. I, I got I got a copy of the report here in front of me, Bill, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and so you go through to the schedule of what the consultant recommended, and most of them were one to three years they need attention. Uh, there was just over 60 uh, inspections done where they needed attention. 
and 12 of those said had to be done within a month. And, and, and were they? No, no, they weren't. And, and, and so there was things like cracked welds, uh, cracked uh, clamps, cracked bolts, loose bolts, that kind of thing. And uh, now the good news is nobody got hurt, nothing foul, and they're fixed. And uh, I can tell your listeners also, I built bridges for a living for a number of years, did about 50 per year. <clears throat> and when you talk to the um, design engineers for structures, what they do is they calculate, a, for example, a bridge fully loaded with trucks end to end, add some elements like ice, get that total weight, double it, and design to that. So there's a safety factor of two in every structure that's built. So these signs we built the same way. They're built for a, a wind that's been experienced in the area and then double that to be able to establish what the design of these things should be. So there is a safety element built into the original design which should give the public some comfort. But at the end of the day, they should have been dealt with, in my view. And, and uh, they weren't. And we, it's, it's our job as, as members of council and certainly as chair of public works committee to drill down on that. And that's exactly what we're doing. I understand because you've explained that before about the safety factors that are built into construction and design. I know that. Uh, but accidents happen anyway. Uh, signs do fall. Uh, hopefully not in Hamilton, but we've seen that. I mean, just you can YouTube this right now, and they'll, it'll probably show you 20 or 30 of the things that are happening. And, and what came to mind when I saw this report uh, was uh, that huge windstorm that we had last year where the power was out in Ancaster for, for about 12, 14 hours or something like that. I was driving back along the link that particular day, and I said, boy, I'm glad those things are f- secured firmly because this is, well, they weren't, apparently. Uh, and they just don't know. I mean, nothing happened. You're absolutely right. But there for the grace of God. Uh, you know, this, this work should have been done. And I guess the question you need to ask or get answered, why wasn't it done? Well, and Did that's somebody exactly decide it wasn't urgent? I can tell you, though, what brings most signs down is automobile collisions. You know, they're, they're on a breakaway system at the bottom. So if a truck hits them, they, they come down. And, uh, but absolutely, Bill, we are asking those tough questions. What else is out there? And when are they going to be addressed? And and the reason they uh, they compile these reports is to know how to put their capital budgets together, because we have, we have to have budgets to do repairs. But something where a professional engineer says this needs attention within a month, they go into a reserve fund or and and go in and out of the regular maintenance budget and fix the welds. In this case, they were catwalks. This is what the the maintenance workers would walk on to fix lighting or fix anything on the sign. Uh, they took them down because they're no longer required. Nowadays, with the with the zoom booms are out there and and man lifts, they can get up to these things without using the catwalk. So they won't even be going back up. Uh, so that you won't. Uh, they've been permanently removed. And we'll, well that's a good idea. Up. I was. I, I, think that was a great idea i talked about doing that many many years ago because uh, as much as the maintenance guys could go up there so look at the vandals and we saw that on a pretty consistent basis well, you, uh, you don't see it much anymore the, the, the pro-life people hanging banners over these things and getting up there to do that and and so these is that's part of the reason again why we're not using these catwalks anymore all right, Esther, your opinion on this and your reaction to this. I mean, you, this is your first term on council. Uh, you're expecting to have a relationship and a bond between mm-hmm. uh, You have to work hand-in-hand with staff like this. But the Red Hill scenario, and now what we're finding out here, uh, it, it's got to shake the confidence a little well, bit. It, it did. Actually, with the Red Hill, it really shook my confidence. I go, what? I, I didn't even know about it, you know. But um, first of all, we have a big corporation. We have 8,000 employees. Safety should be number one concern to Hamiltonians. And for the people that work in Fort Hamilton, that should be their concern, safety. So we have to improve 
the culture within our departments so that reports like this is addressed. So if we improve our relationship with the engineer, making sure they feel comfortable and they know when to spend the money, when not, then it will be addressed. And num the number one thing we have to do is safety to our citizens. But that's that's a given. You'd like to think that that's yep. already in place right now. Uh, what about you? You've been doing this for a long time. You know the the way the protocol that's that's supposed to be followed in situations like this. Lloyd, do you, are you having some concerns right now about the staff uh, council relationship? Uh, not really, because they caught them. We have a whole new regime in there now, mm -hmm. and and most professionals, whether an architect or engineers, generally won't accept other people's calculations. So that's what they're doing. They're going back and and. Uh, you know, I have the utmost confidence in Dan McKinnon, and he's very transparent with the, with with council and committee, and uh, and and so these things were discovered. It'll all come out in the judicial review. Unfortunately, I am not permitted to talk to the former design engineer because it's before a judicial review. I'm looking forward to his testimony on mm -hmm. and how he explains this, and and that'll all be live. It'll all be very public. The, the, everybody will be able to watch that. So until we see that, we can't hear the other side. But in the meantime, we have a duty to go in and fix it. And and you know, council doesn't get involved in all the maintenance that goes on across the city. That's delegated out to staff. We don't get involved every time there's a pothole, and uh, you have to go out and fill it up. Or we don't get involved every time. Well, some of them do. But <laughs> well, they don't get involved in you know how often what we talk about the cycle for cutting grass. But we don't get involved in supervising the people who go and cut grass. That's left to the staff. And uh, my experience, my 12 years on council, is that we have some good staff. We have some excellent staff who uh, do their best. And, and these seem to get away from them, and we need to obviously find out why. Is it a staffing problem? No, are, I don't there, think so. No, I don't, no, I don't, no, I don't think so. We've uh, just in, uh, of course, we keep the, the screws on cost, and as we're supposed to do, we have a fiduciary duty to do that. But uh, I've never heard that the engineering staff are letting health and safety go because they're short-staffed. Now, we've asked a lot of questions about it if they brought that forward, but I've never experienced that yet. Do you sense, though, and you talked about that relationship, uh, mm -hmm. Esther, uh, that that's, that workers, not just managers, but workers can feel comfortable uh, coming forward and saying, I've got some concerns about this? Is, well, there a, is there a channel for communication there? Well, you know, I don't know what the culture was before, but I know moving forward, we need to have a culture where people feel comfortable. You know, you know I've been... Uh, um, I had my own business. I had an insurance company, and then we opened Runner's Den. And I always told my employees, feel comfortable when something goes wrong, you know, and then we could work together. So the culture that is moving forward, I don't know what happened before, should be the culture that if something goes wrong, they feel comfortable coming before council and say, we've got a problem. We need to fix that. So if we uh, change that, uh, it will be a win-win situation for all. And you know what? I want to tell you, I'm impressed with our city's uh, uh, staff. Uh, I had a meeting, and they all came out, and they were so professional. They really care for our city. So that's what we have to improve in the engineer department, whatever department it is that uh, this has been. Uh, and, and, Bill, I should add that we have a whistleblower policy, yeah. and, and we just recently arranged for a hotline that goes directly mm -hmm. to our audit department if right. someone has a concern. It doesn't have to be just an employee. It could be the general public. Right. If you see something that you don't think is right, you call in anonymously, and our audit department will check it out. 
and and find out whether it has you know if, if there's something to it and and so this is available to our employees to use if they think that some corners are being cut that shouldn't be cut because you're putting the public at risk but you know to, to connect the dots here I, the red hill thing and i understand some of the counselors actually kind of got their backs up the other day at the meeting said you know the the link and the red hill thing are totally different well not really i mean yeah one's much more severe than the other i get that but th- it comes down to lack of communication and, and his staff uh, carrying out the orders of and, and the wishes of council, and uh, it, it it seems to generally focus around public works. It, why? You sat here a couple of years ago with uh, the, the city manager at the time about the uh, the asphalt scandal that was going on, and and that blew up in council's face and blew up in staff's face. And uh, I don't know if we're still feeling some of the ramifications. I've talked to some workers that still have a chip on their shoulder about about the way that whole thing was handled. Mm-hmm. Is is there something about public works just in itself, the nature of the business that that that, that harbors these sorts of feelings? Yes. 4,500 employees in that one department. <laughs> wow. And and so you're going to have more problems. Uh, and they're, they're a very visible group. They're out patching potholes. They're driving buses. They're cutting grass. They're running arenas. Uh, they, they've got a, a big portfolio that they run. You know, they run our sewage treatment plant. They want a rotter treatment plant. Uh, and, and they fix, uh, they oversee all the construction that goes on in our community. So just by the sheer numbers. I mean, the, the asphalt thing, you know, when you get caught only doing a half hour's work, and by collecting a full day's pay, there was going to be consequences, and that's what happened. And 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 you know, some of us did feel sorry, and I believe they were reinstated for some young guys who were told by the supervisors, "Don't you say a word." And of course, they're new employees; they're not going to push back at the boss. And and so they 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 took a hit for it, but they were reinstated. But uh, I'm sorry uh, if you're spending taxpayers' money and you're collecting a full day's pay. We expect a full day's work, and otherwise, um, you'll be called to task for it. Well, and that was a, that was another problem that, that uh, reared its head a few years ago too, and it had to do with the the the, the, the waste car trucks that were going around there, and you know, guys that were sitting around there waiting for the I guess the the end of the day, and they they do a half hour's work or a half day's work, and they get paid for a whole day work. Mm-hmm. How do you ensure, as counselors, both right. of you, and we've got about a minute left for each of you, and then I have to do a break. How do you ensure that we as, as taxpayers are getting value for our dollar? We, we want everyone that works for the city of Hamilton take responsibility that they are working for the city of Hamilton, for the taxpayers. And we then realize that the job must be done properly and that they have a right to speak up if something doesn't go right and feel comfortable in that, then I think we, we move a culture where uh, we realize that there is help if, if, they, if they have problems. And you put in place key performance indicators to know yeah. whether or not performing. The waste one, good, good example. So a crew is assigned a route. They finish that route early and they can leave. But you drill down on the numbers in the waste group, they had 32% of our employees had lost time injuries. The reason is they were rushing so hard, they were slipping and falling and hurting their backs. And so we put in, and the key performance indicators popped that right off the page at us, that they were rushing too much. So we fixed that problem, put the measurements in place to make sure that they're operating safely, put our health and safety staff out there to coach them, but they can't be running from location to location and stepping on ice and falling down mm-hmm. and then going on our, our WSIB claims. So that's been fixed, Bill. And and once again, it gets, it's all very, in the private sector, nobody finds this stuff out, but in the public sector, we're, we're, we're very transparent. This well, all gets shared. It's because yeah. it's our money. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's uh, the city councilors uh, roundtable today. Uh, we'll uh, set the mayors, give them the day off, but uh, the councilors are the ones we want to hear from. We're going to do this on a pretty regular basis, uh, listening to uh, some of the concerns and uh, give the uh, councilors an opportunity to respond to some of the issues that you've talked to us about over the last little while. Uh, Ancaster Council, uh, Lloyd Ferguson, Ward 12 Councilor, because I know part of Flamborough. Okay, we'll mm-hmm. uh, do that, edit on that. And uh, Esther Pauls, of course, from Ward 7 up on the Central Mountain is with us. Uh, I want to move on. There's a lot of other things I want to talk about, uh, including some capital projects on uh, your part, Lloyd, that I'll let you talk about in just a couple of seconds. But one of the other ongoing themes and one of the ongoing concerns in this community, of course, has been hate crimes here in this city. Uh, it's it's a troubling and quite frankly an embarrassing statistic about the report that came out a couple of weeks ago that said we have more hate crimes per capita here than any other part of Canada. Uh, that's not the Hamilton we want to live in. It's not the Hamilton that most of us know, but those numbers are there and those numbers exist. Uh, now we've had that, uh, from that we've morphed into what happened of course during Pride Week. Subsequently we've got these uh, demonstrations uh, and rallies that are going on in the forecourt of City Hall. And uh, there are people within this community that are, are concerned about what they consider council's lack of action on this and police services' lack of action on this. And uh, you both are, are among a group of councillors that some people are saying are missing in action in this whole thing, that mm-hmm. you need to be more proactive. Right. So I want to give you both a chance to respond sure. to that. Esther, I'll start with you. Yeah. Um, Bill, first of all, there should be no hate in our city. Every citizen should know that. But I did not realize how much hate there is. And um, I was so surprised, and uh, I want people to know that I take it very seriously. And our city uh, leaders, we have to do something. And also, I want to say that I support the police, but I also want the police to know that when the law is broken, charges have to be laid. We have to take this very seriously. And I'm glad that now I've um, actually opened my eyes to it, realize how bad it is. Now, I wasn't able to go last Saturday because I was out of town. But I'll tell you, I support, I support peace in our city. And that's what I want. And you know what? Love conquers it all. And in my heart, uh, I, I just don't understand it. I don't understand how people could hate someone else. So um, I'm fully supportive of what we can do as city councils to uh, make sure our city is safe for everyone, everyone. Lloyd? Well, first of all, um, I'm a white male, and and so I probably haven't been exposed to a lot of this. So sometimes we got to sit back and listen rather than speak up, and, and I'm using this. As, as an example of that, I, I was bullied in, in school, and I mean, I was a son of a dairy farmer when it wasn't an honorable profession, and I always got teased and poked at and tried to get pulled into fights because all I knew how to do was shovel, you know what, and, and plow fields. Uh, that's changed, but then I grew to be six foot one and a couple hundred pounds, and I could defend myself. So I, I haven't experienced this, but what if I sit back and watch? This is not just a Hamilton issue. This is a North American issue, at least. Sure it is, yeah. Look mm-hmm. what's happening in the U.S. with these shootings. Mm-hmm. It's unconscionable. You know, do we do the right thing by getting rid of street checks so officers can't go approach people that look suspicious? And they, they can tell them, you want to walk away, you can, and the bad guys are walking away. I understand why we did it, but was it the right decision? I, I, I'm off the police board now, so I'm not going to deal with that matter. But um, one one point I do want to make is that on both sides of this thing, whether it's Yellow Vesters or whether it's the Pride Group, 
there's a group of about 10 or 15 that just want to pick a fight. And, and uh, they demonstrated that for me in the council chambers when they screamed over us with profanities and, and cursing at us and saying horrible things, disrupt us to the point where we had to recess the meeting to allow um, uh, the security to take them out. And you can't let that uh, type of behavior win. They can't win by doing that because we have a very well-understood process. If you got a message from members of council, you register as a delegation to the appropriate committee. You come in, you ha- you get the microphone, we listen, and, and we'll respond to that. But we will never respond to someone trying to sabotage meeting or take away democracy or shut down the business of the city. We won't allow that to happen. I won't support that. But on the on the bigger issue, I mean, it's like the opioid addiction. That's a North American phenomenon too, if it's not even a worldwide one. And and we got to you know learn by. Um, there's an expression the Swiss always taught me: stew with pride. Watch what your other people are doing, and pick up on that. So our 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 city manager has been charged with the responsibility of putting together a plan. She brings uh, update reports regularly. We had one again recently. And uh, we'll have a firm report coming to us in the fall of a policy on how to deal with this. But clearly, I'm with Esther. Uh, we got to get the cameras fixed up because they're, they're, they're not uh, the quality that could be used in a court case. And, and people who are being goons out there, slamming people with helmets or putting on black capes and pink masks and disguising themselves to pick a physical fight, we got to identify who they are and bring them to the full extent of the law. But the, the, the most elementary concern here that people are raising is what's happening every Saturday in front of City Hall. I mean, there are hate groups that are there uh, and have been for quite some time, for a number of months now, they're, they're showing up there. Uh, why Hamilton? I mean, I mean, I understand it's a national problem. It's an international problem, really, I, you know, when you look at it from that context. But we're worried about what's going on in our own community. You know, uh, Bill, I heard somebody say it's election time. Maybe this is uh, in the state, so they're having their primaries. We're going to have an election time, and uh, I don't know what's going on. Just all of a sudden, I see it more. I did say, and uh, I hope I I didn't uh, offend anybody, that really in January and February, I was uh, getting up early, going to work, because I love to work. I love to talk to people. And when I went in the front, there weren't that many people, and I did say that, but it was the truth. January, February, I didn't see anybody. I saw on a Saturday. I would go in Saturday to uh, to work a little bit, and I would see a lot of police. But I would, and I, I remember asking, "What's going on here?" And there was hardly anybody. And all of a sudden, I opened my eyes, and there's such a mess. I didn't, uh, didn't how even did realize get, how that. How did it get this far? How did it get that way? Is it because all of a sudden in the States what's happening is moving here or we're having an election, people need to uh, voice their opinion? And you know, I know that even in election, there's so much hatred toward every different parties. Like, you know, freedom of speech. They could say anything about anybody if you're running for politics. And I find it very offensive in that. So I think the election has something to do with it. I think it has something to do with uh, what's happening in the states. So we need to focus. Focus on loving people of all kinds. Marginalize everyone. And uh, in my, that's my compassion. Does, but does, I, does city council have a responsibility? We, I think they do. We do. And, and it's, it's not just about the pride issue, although that's the one that's front and center right that, now because of where it's, what's going on. But these numbers, Lloyd... 
are, are, are the, this this thing was here long before the Pride issue, long before Pride Week, long before the uh, the controversy about raising the Pride flag. Uh, you know, we've got desecration of Jewish cemeteries, we've got graffiti, we've got mosques that are that are being attacked and and, and desecrated and and vandalized in situations. Uh, and and like I say, the numbers are the numbers. This is happening here in Hamilton. How is council going to deal with this? I mean, people right now say in many instances they don't feel safe walking down the street, whether they're LGBTQ, whether they're Muslim, whether they're Jewish, whether they're black. Uh, they all, at this point, many of them feel threatened right now, and, and council's got to respond to that. And this has been going on for a while. I, I remember two years ago they went into the Little League Park in Ancaster and just destroyed the washrooms, did some nasty, nasty spray painting with pictures, and, and we're very critical of the Jewish race. And and, and uh, a couple of days ago, Arlene Vanderbeek yeah. experienced that down in Dundas. They went into the, the Dundas Driving Park, a very popular park, and, and, and just desecrated the place with, with graffiti. And, and you know, we clearly got to depend on our police to enforce this. And, and with the advent of camera technology, we're mm-hmm. going to be able to quickly identify these. We've got cameras in most of our parks now, and the police love it. When you got it on film... They, and, and I remember personally, one of our businesses was robbed and our cameras were there and it didn't look very clear. The police took the film, cleaned it up and says, I know that guy. <laughs> you know, and, and so they put a warrant out for his arrest and had him picked up in two days. And, and I had the same thing in the Meadowlands. Uh, somebody went through that, uh, that neighborhood and was terrorizing. Just did significant damage to the Dutch church on Stonehenge Drive. Damaged a lot of vehicles. But they eventually, it was one person, they eventually got him. Look at what happened on Lock Street. You know, all that hatred and then running down there. And and the police were heavily criticized for the two officers are not stopping them. But, you know, they're well trained that unless there's somebody's life's at risk or someone's been hurt, they're to stand down until backup gets there. And within 19 minutes or 15 minutes, there were 32 officers there and to shut it down. And every one of them has been brought to justice. That's how you fight it. You bring the, the the criminals to justice and get them locked up. And he was the same person who led that on Lock Street was one of the leaders for the Pride Group down in City Hall and, and, and broke his parole requirements. And so you just let the police do their job on this. But we got to give the t- the police the tools they need to be able to enforce but, it. But that point, and I'm just reiterating what I'm hearing from listeners and uh, concerned citizens, really, who have contacted the show over the many issues that we've talked about and the many times we've talked about these is they want to see police being more proactive, not reactive. That's one thing to say, yeah, we'll look at the video after the event occurs and we'll go arrest the bad people. That, that's great. But can you? what are you going to do to stop it? I mean, what are you going to do to make people feel safe on the street now? Well, the police have a strong presence at City Hall every Saturday now and, and, and are keeping the peace. I mean, that yellow bus was disgusting. They pulled that thing down there, but they had it pulled out pretty quick. And and uh, now maybe they should have charged the driver. I'm not going to get inside the officers' that were heads that were down there and what they witnessed. But uh, you know, this is this is costing the taxpayers money. But this is what we have police for: mm-hmm. is is to be at the hot spots and and deal with the matter. And I think they're doing a pretty good job of it. You know, I was thinking about the graffiti uh, concession street. It's always hit by graffiti, and it costs money. We need education to tell these people that are doing the graffiti and this hateful thing that the city costs uh, taxpayers. We're paying for it. You know, to uh, remove graffiti costs money. So education. You know, we used to think graffiti was a form of artwork, you know, so we're giving them walls. I I never thought that. No, no. Well, we're giving them walls and we're saying, you you do your artwork here and you don't have to do it. it. Sometimes it doesn't work. Graffiti 
It costs money to remove things. So we have to educate. The police need to do their job, and I know they are trying, and I know they're doing it. And when they see something that is wrong, they need to lay charges. So we have to work together in this. It's not just one against the other. It's all working together. Well, uh, yeah, I, 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 I don't want to conflate the, the issues of hate with uh, the uh, graffiti. Uh, street art and graffiti, by the way, two different things. And, right. we, and we've talked about that, and you've talked about that many years at City Council. But the concern here is people's not feeling safe on the street, uh, whether it's down at City Hall on a Saturday, whether it's walking at 9 o'clock at night downtown, whatever the case might be. Uh, do we have, I mean, you're, as a former chair of the Police Services Board, are we doing as much as we could do and should do when it comes to public safety, especially in, in some of these downtown cores? Because uh, I'm, I'm including a number of them, of course, because we all have our little downtown cores in different areas of the city right now. But it does it come down to staffing? But it, I, I could tell you, Bill, um, we can always do better. But I remember when I was first elected, I met some of the operators of the hotels in downtown, and they said primarily their female guests were afraid to go out and, and run in the morning to get exercise uh, because of some of the elements were down there. And uh, Glenda Kerr, our former chief, dealt with that matter. He started the action unit. And these are the yellow-jacketed officers that are on foot patrol in the downtown area. And I think people are, feel safer now than what they once did. This is complicated, this, this hate crime. And, and for some reason, it's exploding all over the place. It's not exclusive to Hamilton. And we got to figure this one out, too. I get that. And, and that's why we're going to come up with a policy from the city of how we're going to manage this. I've uh, got a couple of minutes left here. Uh, you talked to us some months ago now about uh, the, uh, the Ancaster Arts Center, yeah. uh, the proposed Ancaster Arts Center. Uh, the funding seemed to be in place. I know there are going to be some cost overruns. They always seem to be with construction projects. Uh, but but they pulled the rug out from Monday when the provincial government decided they're not going to put the money out there that the previous government had committed. Now, you dealt with that at committee just a couple of days ago. The concern that a lot of your colleagues was ta- were talking about was we don't want to have a, an impact on the tax base on this. How, how did you resolve this? Well, um this is a good news story. And, and, and while it was bad news, it was unconscionable that the province pulled the funding. And they said we never had it in writing. Well, come on. It got, there was a public announcement on site. There was cabinet approval, which was minuted. There was treasury board approval, which was minuted. And it was included in the March 2018 budget with the previous government with even a picture of it. So I think we had it in writing a lot of places. But uh, for political reasons, they pulled it. And, and only I guess only Donna or the premier can answer that for you. But uh, the way we did it is that uh, we were short $8 million now. It, we, had, we had some jolts from the architect, uh, some things they missed. We had uh, archaeological, and it, it just was a runaway train and, and went over by about a $1 million. Uh, and the bids come in, $2.4 million. So going into yesterday's public works meeting, we were short $8 million. And the way we fix that, we're going to area rate 2.6 of that to Ancaster through the area rating process. We're going to take $2.6 million out of the unallocated capital reserve, the same place we took about the same amount of money, a little less than $2 million for the Greg Meyer Arena when it got in trouble, and then $2.6 million out of the um, uh, gas tax uh, money, which is used for things, and we used it for city hall renovations. So we were able to pull from those three funds without any impact to the city Hamilton tax base in order to get this across the line. And yesterday at Public Works, an 11-0 vote, it was approved to go. We have a low-bid contractor. 
Uh, it has to be ratified at council tomorrow, but when you have 11 to 0 vote, I mm-hmm. suspect it's going to be okay because there's only going to be 14 members of council there tomorrow, mm-hmm. and 11 of them are, f- are for there yesterday. And and then uh, we'll be awarding the contract probably tomorrow afternoon and be in the ground, I would think, in a month, month and a half, and it'll take about two years to construct. This is good for the entire city, Hamilton. Right. As an example, it was, uh, they run a training program for kids school-age kids who are interested in the arts, whether it's uh, singing, dancing, mm-hmm. uh, playing an instrument. And uh, for the last four years, they opened that up in May for registration, and in all four cases sold out in 15 minutes. Uh, once this new facility is up, we're going to double that, and we're going to work with places like City Kids, because they have buses, to allow children from the inner city mm-hmm. to come up and participate in the arts uh, in this facility. Over 50% of the people that attend theater there come from outside Ancaster. Right. Can I add to that? you got about 10 seconds. Okay. It was so exciting yeah, so to see uh, a group of people from Ancaster and from the arts. It lifts the soul, whether it's music, art, sport. It lifts the soul. It unites the city. I was so proud to be there. And I thank you for uh, seven years of time to do this. So it was a great day. All right, very quickly, because I've got a couple of seconds left here. Uh, One of the biggest frustrations anybody ever feels in this city is trying to get from point A to point B, especially in the summertime. Uh, We know now, we just talked about the link a few minutes ago, uh, scheduled construction is going to be taking place over the next couple of weeks, and they're going to close down eastbound one weekend and westbound the other, or the other way around. And uh, Garner Road, a.k.a. Rymel Road, the Ancaster version of this, uh, you've got work going on up there, too. I do. And I, you know, I was very proud we did Wilson Street. That was a horribly disruptive, but I'm proud that it's done end-to-end and done ahead of schedule. Garner Road, they got in trouble. We uh, purposely arranged to have that closed for July and August while the kids are off school, and we won't interfere with the school buses. And so uh, I was advised a couple of days ago, and, and I knew this was happening because I do visit the site regularly. They've hit a lot of perched water. They've had to put in what's called well points. They've had to pump the water down. But the, end, the bottom line is it's not going to open on August 31st anymore. The new uh, scheduled opening date is September 27th. All right. Uh, thanks to both of you for coming in here. We're going to be doing these on a regular basis with uh, your co- colleagues and, and yourselves, too, as uh, some of these issues come up. Uh, uh, thank es- you, Esther Bill. Paul, thank Anytime. you. Lloyd Ferguson, and Bill, thank, thank you, you for thank having you. us on to, yes. to be able to message us out to our community. Yes. Appreciate that. Very Love much. our city. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Federal politics obviously grabbing the headlines uh, since yesterday when the report was finally released from Ethics Commissioner Mario Dion that uh, confirmed what many people had already assumed to be the case is that uh, the Prime Minister did breach the ethics law and the conflict of interest laws in his dealing with SNC-Lavalin earlier this year, of course. Uh, And the reaction to this has been swift, as you might have expected. Uh, The long-term impacts, well, we're not sure yet. Obviously, there is an election coming up in the third week of October. And, uh, well, the the speculation now is exactly what kind of an impact is this going to have. How will the opposition parties deal with this in the days and weeks ahead? Joining us to talk about this is Jagmeet Singh, who is the leader of the uh, uh, federal NDP party. Joining us uh, on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Mr. Singh, thank you for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. I mean, I, I guess the obvious question here, given what we knew about uh, the, the the affair, given what we knew from the the parliamentary committees uh, that had done some investigation in this, were you surprised by Mr. Dion's results? Well, I was surprised by how scathing it was. This is an unequivocal report that says that the prime minister broke the law. He broke the conflict of interest law, and he broke it in a really serious way. It's clear from the findings that 
he tried everything possible to bend the will of the attorney general to benefit a multi-million, a multi-billion-dollar corporation, and also to benefit himself in what Mr. Trudeau believed would help him get reelected. All of this should not have happened. When it comes to the prosecution of a corporation charged with serious allegations of corruption, there should be no interference from the prime minister trying to get a lenient sentence for a corporation like that. This is really troubling, and really. The bigger question is, it calls into question, is this prime minister working for people or is he working to make life easier for multimillionaires while everyone else has a harder and harder time making ends meet? And that's really what we're seeing as a trend in Ottawa, whether it's liberals or conservatives, they seem to be helping those at the very top make their lives easier while everyone else is having it harder and harder. I guess that, that, that's a perception in the eyes of the beholder and sometimes, though, isn't it? I mean, if, if you look at the reaction that the public had, and I'll go back a few months now uh, to when the parliamentary hearings were going on, uh, in, in the province of Quebec, where SNC-Lavalin, of course, is, is, is focused and centered for the most part, uh, the overwhelming majority of the people supported what the government was doing at that time because they saw a net economic benefit to their community and to their province. Well, on the job front, I think we should be really clear there was never any threat to jobs in Canada. If we're talking about infrastructure builds, so we're talking about bri- building bridges or roads, uh, things that SNC, Lavalin, that construction companies are responsible for, whether or not these allegations were found to be true in the court of law would not change the fact that Canadians would be doing those jobs. It might not be SNC, Lavalin, but it would still be Canadians. So those job losses, it's not a true uh, figure. In fact, SNC, Lavalin itself said there was no threat of us lo- moving our headquarters. There's no threat of us leaving Canada. So again, those, those, that specter of job loss is really not made out in any of the evidence that we saw. So it's kind of a, a red herring. The reality is the laws that involve uh, this kind of situation where um, a corporation is given the chance to have this deferred prosecution agreement says very clearly economic figures should not play a role because we don't want to encourage corruption. If there's a charge of corruption in a corporation, then it should be heard in court. It's a pretty basic thing. And more so, the prime minister shouldn't be working for powerful corporations. He should be working for the benefit of Canadians. And that's really what's been called into question. Where did we go from here? And, and uh, both you and Mr. Shear have uh, have level accusations about breaking the law and criminal activity. Uh, yet I'm, I'm looking at some of the comments from Mr. Dion yesterday that he said in his report that he didn't think any laws had been broken. Uh, even in her testimony at the Parliamentary Committee, uh, Ms. Wilson-Raybolt, uh, a couple of months ago, suggested that she, as the uh, former Attorney General at that point, didn't think any laws were broken. So so where are we going here? Where, where is that line? Let's be really clear. The law was broken. The conflict of interest law was broken. So that is certainly a law that was broken by the Prime Minister, uh, not once, but twice. I think what we need to do is make sure that the Canadians are informed when it comes to election time. Uh, really what this is about is the influence of the powerful, the wealthy, the people at the very top on our on our government. And what's happening is that this isn't something limited to the Liberal Party. Mr. Scheer's party, the Conservatives, are equally um, culpable in this, in this idea of being influenced by powerful corporations. The Duffy scandal and numerous other scandals in the Conservative government show that they also work in the interests of the very powerful. And I'm asking Canadians to consider in the, 20, in the 2019 election in October, October 21st, you should elect a government that works for you. You should work to elect a government. You don't have to choose between going back to the Harper years, which people rejected and went to the Liberals, 
And now if we're seeing that we're disappointed and the Liberals have to go back to the Conservatives, I reject that notion. I think that Canadians have a better option, a better choice. They can choose to elect new Democrats who will be on their side, not cave in when pharmaceutical companies come calling and saying, we can't have universal pharmacare for all. Not cave in to real estate developers who say, oh, we can't have affordable housing. We need someone who's willing to say no to corporations and say yes to people. But there's a cynical point of view that I'm sure you've heard, uh, and I certainly have in, in my job here as a, as a talk show host. People saying, look, you know, that's just, it's the way politics run. Yeah, it, it, that's a little shady sometimes, but it doesn't matter who you elect. They've all got people that they're beholden to, and there's always going to be pressure to do that sort of stuff. Uh, no, not at all. We sh- and that, that cynicism is real. You're right. It does exist, but we do not have to accept that. I mean, the status quo parties, the liberals and conservatives, are absolutely beholden to powerful interest groups. They are. It's the reality. Look at their fundraising. That's who they're beholden to. We are not. New Democrats are not beholden to anyone but the people. We, are, we have less fundraising for a reason, because we're not beholden to those powerful folks. We're beholden to everyday families that I meet, the people that are working hard and not getting ahead, people that don't see a bright future for themselves and their kids, I'm beholden to them. And that's who I represent, and that's who I want to represent. And I don't care if a corporation says, you know, if you do this, it's going to hurt our corporation. I'm going to say, will it benefit people? If it does, I will move ahead with that decision. And that's the main Canadians can be confident in. Do you, as uh, others have talked about over the last little while, uh, suggest and, and encourage the idea that, uh, that there be further investigation here? Well, I've long called for, uh, when this first began, a public inquiry. A public inquiry would give a broad mandate, would create some transparency, would allow a lot of unanswered questions uh, to be answered, and and that's what I've called for, and I think that's the the best way to move forward if if Canadians want to get more answers to the questions they ask. How do you see that? How how would you structure something like that? Well, there's there's been many examples in Canadian history where we've had uh, an inquiry into something, the sponsorship scandal resulted in an inquiry. The public inquiry has a really broad mandate, uh, broad powers of, in- of investigation. It allows an independent judge to ask questions, to interview witnesses. And what it's different from uh, than a criminal investigation, for example, is criminal investigations are limited by proof beyond a reasonable doubt. They're limited to criminal laws, where a public inquiry is just a fact-finding. So Canadians can really learn what happened, uh, all the details, all the evidence, all the facts, so that we can make findings to prevent something like this in the future. So this is, obviously, this is uh, is going to be, as you mentioned, not political in any way, shape, or form, because that's uh, one of the criticisms, of course, of the previous investigation, the, the parliamentary investigations uh, that were going on earlier this year, of course, is, is obviously it's elected people that are doing that, and, and they bring their biases certainly to, to the table, and we saw evidence of that for sure. Right. If, if uh, we have, uh, for example, we tried to investigate this matter at the committee level, and the problem with the committees is that they are dominated by the majority liberal government. So it's hard to get to the witness list and have the, the right people testify or invite them to testify because there's other members of the committee that can vote against it. The public inquiry would be independent, would have a mandate to go out and investigate and to ask witnesses questions and to go get to the truth. Uh, and in the past, uh, public inquiries have been really powerful tools of fact-finding and been a, being able to get to the bottom. Really, uh, Canadians need to know that governments work for their interests, not for the corporate interests, not for the powerful and the wealthy and the rich. They work for Canadians. And, and that's really what this, this scandal's all been about. It's been about the fact that a billionaire corporation was facing charges, legitimate corruption charges, because of an RCMP investigation, called up the Prime Minister and said, we need to find a way out of this. 
And ever since, the Prime Minister has been trying to find a way to get them off the hook. And that's not the way governments should be run. That does not ring uh, in the sense of the democracy and the transparency and the judicial system that we believe in doesn't ring true to what Canadians want to see happen. Now, I, I think there's general consensus uh, that, that the, as you say, the Parliamentary Committee investigations uh, were less than thorough for a variety of reasons, and, and certainly there was a, a, a strong odor of partisanship uh, in that committee room. It's just about everybody was, was sitting at that table. Uh, had their own particular view on this. Now, along comes Mr. Dion as the ethics commissioner and issues this report. Are you comfortable that uh, that he's covered all the bases, uh, that, that this report is thorough and complete about uh, everything we needed to know, the people that had to be interviewed, etc.? Well, it's very thorough in the sense that Mr. Dion was very independent and did a great job, uh, but he remarked that the, the report is not thorough, not because of his lack of effort, but because the Prime Minister did not waive conf- uh, cabinet confidentiality, he remarked that there were a number of witnesses that had evidence and mentioned that they had evidence that uh, could not testify because of that lack of uh, cabinet confidence being waived. So Mr. Trudeau purposely decided not to waive that confidence so that they could not testify. So he himself remarked that this is not a full fulsome report because there was a number of witnesses that weren't able to give their evidence. But if there's an inquiry, as, as you've suggested, uh, as you say, independent inquiry, uh, does that, uh, that parliamentary uh, privilege still exist, though? I mean, does a commissioner or a retired judge or whomever's doing something like that have the authority to say, I don't care about that, you, you have to testify anyway? Well, normally what happens with public inquiries is that when they're struck, uh, it's struck by parliament, and the parliament gives them the broad authority to ask those questions and they're given powers that go beyond what uh, normal investigations have. And those powers would allow for us to hear from these witnesses. And, and that's, I think, the reason why the public inquiry is such a powerful tool. It's, it's been used not uh, commonly, but enough times in the history of Canada where we've seen that it's actually given us really deep insights into what's going on. There's, a, there's a, a point of procedure here that I wanted to ask you about, because there, w- there was another report that came out. Uh, it kind of got buried, obviously, in the news because of, uh, of Mr. Dion's report, but it was a report that, that uh, the government had ordered and, and requested from uh, former uh, uh, Cabinet Minister Anne McClellan, uh, and it had to do with the separation of duties between the Attorney General and Justice Minister. Uh, and, and I guess the most simplistic way to put this is one, by definition, is a cabinet position. The other is, is the top uh, law enforcement officer, of course, in the country. And uh, there was a lot of concern in the time when this investigation started that, uh, that they were incongruous, as, uh, that one tended to overlap the other, that, that uh, you know, talking to a cabinet minister is, is fair game, talking to the attorney general is not, but if it's the same person. There seems to be some sort of a, a confluence there that seemed to muddy the waters. Now, she suggested that those don't have to be separated. Do you agree with that assessment? Well, I think the Liberals would love us to debate whether or not that's the case or not, and I think that it's really irrelevant to what happened. Either way, what we have is a prime minister who broke the law, who applied pressure that was inappropriate. The attorney general herself herself said, what's happening is inappropriate. When I was first asked to review my decision, that was okay. But what happened afterwards, I said, no, my position is strong, that this is the right thing to do. The chief prosecutor of Canada essentially says that we should go ahead with this prosecution. I support her decision. At that point, the prime minister continued to apply relentless pressure to have her change her position, not for any sort of real reason to protect jobs, which is, which is a red herring, as I indicated earlier. He did it to protect his own job because he was worried about re-election. 
He did it to help out a powerful multi-billion dollar corporation that, mind you, donated illegally to the Liberal Party, which shows their deep connections. In fact, also has deep connections with the Conservative Party. That's what this is about. And the academic discussion about whether we separate those two positions or not doesn't really matter in the light in the face of the violation of the conflict of interest law that the prime minister has done which is unprecedented has not happened in the history of our country and now this prime minister has done it twice and if we want to change that we've got to change the culture that culture is the same culture between the conservatives and the liberals of working for the powerful and the rich we need to actually have a government a new democrat government that's going to work for people uh we'll have to leave it there we're just about out of time thank you so much for the time jagmeet great talking with you again Hey, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. That's, uh, of course, uh, federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. Uh, Andrew Scheer, of course, responded, uh, suggesting that, uh, that the, well, at one point he suggested that the prime minister should resign. Don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Uh, there is talk about an investigation, ongoing investigation, as Mr. Singh talked about, as Mr. Scheer did. Uh, the prime minister himself responded yesterday. My job as a prime minister is to stand up for Canadians and defend their interests. And uh, yes, it is essential that we do that in a way that defends our institutions, that upholds prosecutorial independence. But we need to be able to talk about the impacts on Canadians right across the country of decisions being made. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau responding to uh, the report from uh, Ethics Commissioner Dion uh, yesterday. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.